0: Psalm 20 is where we'll be tonight, and Psalm 20 is generally characterized, or almost universally characterized, as a royal psalm. And what we mean by a royal psalm is that it is one that focuses on the king of the people. A royal psalm will focus on the king. We've looked at a couple already that are generally classed as royal psalms. For example, uh, Psalms 2 and 18 are usually viewed that way. 20 and, Lord willing, next week, 21 will be viewed that way. 45, 72,
1: 89...
0: Uh, 101, 110, 132, and 144 are generally psalms viewed as royal psalms. Now, some say and some argue that even though that's about 10 or 11 of these psalms that are characterized as royal psalms, they take on an extra benefit. They take on an extra benefit extra power and meaning because of their placement at the Psalms. Can any of you remember the five books of the Psalms? If you're doing, if you can't, can't fail you. Oh like that's good school. But but just can any of you remember? Can any of you remember uh, those five books? You mean the divisions? Yes, the divisions of the books.
1: 1 through 41?
0: Yes. 1 through 41. Then you start with 42, obviously, (laughs) through... What? 72. Okay? So you notice one of these things, you have one near the very beginning. You have one at the end of the second book. And what's the third book?
1: Maybe looking at you.
0: Yes, it's looking at you on the board. Seventy-three to eighty-nine. Now it doesn't get so easy after that. But it's ninety to one hundred six. But but something because of the special place that some of these have in what is called the seams of the psalm. That this is this makes these psalms of even greater importance. Okay, think about that a moment. And when we come to the end of the class and we ask the question, how does this psalm speak of Christ? Just just see if that can provide you any light or any help at all. Now, things that are characteristic of these psalms are the term anointed, the term king, or the personal name of David. David. The term king is used in this psalm in 20 verse 9. The term anointed is used in 20 verse 6. Therefore, it's used, uh, it's classification as a royal psalm. It's interesting if you look through all those psalms I have on the board, that there'll be a couple of them that do, do not mention any of those three points. And they are royal psalms because they describe a person who has a power that only a king would have. Like Psalm 101 is an example. Psalm 101 is an example of that. And um, now, it is hard for us. You know, we have been led to distrust monarchy. Uh, because of the country's past. And and I do think that that, that's that's probably a good thing. A monarchy is a great thing if you've got a great monarch. But but it's a really bad thing if you've got a bad one. And um, I I think when... um, It's hard for us to see the significance they attach to kings and the hopes... And aspirations they had for kings, but I think Psalm 45 is a good example of this. In Psalm 45, verses one through five, the king is viewed as the uh, mightiest of men. He is mighty. He is. Um, he is the most righteous of men. He loves righteousness. He hates iniquity. And he is even described as the best looking of men. He he sums up in one person all the qualities that we associate with, with manhood, with strength, with power. Uh, his enemies fall at his feet. All of these things that we associate uh, with the great hopes surrounding a person. But um, there's a passage in Lamentations 4.20. Lamentations, not a frequently quoted book in our sermons and Bible classes. But it talks about the King. And let me just get the exact expression. In Lamentations 4.20, the breath, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed... "...was captured in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the nations." So they were expecting the king to provide a shelter, the king to stand up and defend them, kind of like they asked Saul one to fight their battles for them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, he is described as the breath of our nostrils. The breath of our nostrils, and we live under his shadow. So uh, there are many hopes uh, associated with the king, and the king was to be protected at all. Uh, all the people could give their lives to the king. For example, 2 Samuel 21 15 through 17. There's an account where David was fighting a giant. He almost got killed. And Abishai intervenes and saves David's life. And they say to him, you're never going to war again. We're not letting you go. Because you are the lamp of Israel. The king was to be protected. And you think about that a little bit in contrast to what happened to Christ. So those are just some introductory remarks about these kinds of psalms. More could be said, and if you have a good question or a good comment, feel free to make it. But let's look at the text. Psalm 20, the New American Standard. For the choir director, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. May He send you help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May He remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offering acceptable, Sila. May He grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of God, we will set our banners. May the Lord fulfill your petitions, all your petitions. Verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer from His holy heaven with the saving strength of His right hand. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O God. May the King answer us in the day we call. Verses 1 through 5 seem to be the first division of the Psalm, and they are begging God to answer prayer on behalf of the king. And verses 6 through 10 express confidence uh, that the victory will be won. So that's how I would outline the Psalm. uh, 21 through 5 uh, a prayer that the king be blessed. May the name of the God of Jacob be set on high, and then verses 6 through 9, confidence in that. Now some of you are trying to write that down. Do I give you enough time, uh, Isaac? Or do I need to, you want me to write that on the board? Um, anybody else? I'll be glad to write that down. But 1 through 5, 6 through 9 is the basic division. If you want to ask me more about that later, then. Then feel free to. It is interesting that this is kind of like a prayer, but the Lord isn't really addressed except in the first part of verse 9. Save a Lord. It is really a prayer, say, may the Lord bless you in this case. <clears throat> I'm not trying to be insulting, but sometimes I have to go back and, and look. And the best way to say this, too. Uh, do you understand in grammar the idea of a adjective? The idea of a of a adjective. Okay, adjective is often used. At least in Hebrew, it's used. This is dangerous. spell that, Use it in a sentence. Okay, the act of being Joseph, but no, no, that's just a phrase. But Joseph is usually used with third person. In Hebrew, it's used with third person verbs, and it's third person, really third person imperfect verbs in Hebrew. It's like the idea that may may like it's expressed in verses 1 through 4. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Uh, May the Lord do this and that for you all. If you looked it up, I looked it up as far as an English dictionary. In the dictionary that I had on my computer simply said it is, it is a command. It's not always a command. It expresses a desire. It expresses a hope. It expresses a wish. And the reason I make a big deal of this is that you have eight of these in, verses, in Psalm 20 verses 1 through 4. You have eight of these Jussives. It is, it is basically a prayer that God may be with the King, God may bless the King, expresses a desire, expresses a wish, expresses a hope that God will bless the King in these various circumstances. Let me give you a passage to compare it to. Numbers six, verses twenty-four through twenty-six. Numbers six 24 through 26. That is, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and give you peace. You're familiar with that, the priestly blessing. It's the same idea. So, that, that's, that's what we mean. Does that, does that help, Brad? I didn't exactly use it in a sentence, but showing the basic concept... Uh, here And there are eight of these here in the first four verses. But, but notice how they appeal to God. The, the assumption is, and first of all it talks about a day of trouble or a day of distress. From reading this psalm, what would you say is that day of trouble or day of distress? Well, what, what is the day of distress that's described in the
1: psalm? Is it connected to uh, battle against their enemies?
0: Yes, it seems like it is in verse 7. It seems like the day of distress, the day of trouble, is the day they face a conflict with their foes in battle.
2: And
0: if some of you served in the military, this may not apply to you, but sometimes in reading biblical stories, where people go to war um, knowing the outcome of those stories we might underestimate all the hopes and especially fears associated with those events and that would be a day of trouble that would be a day of crisis and often these were days of trouble and days of crisis for God's people when they did nothing to provoke them They were simply living as they should and the enemy attacks. And we'll see some illustrations of that, Lord willing, at the end. But when the people... The assumption is that when the people come to this day, they're going to cry out to God. And it's begging God to answer. Now, I understand how somebody might at first glance say, well, oh, this is a royal psalm that talks about the king. This is irrelevant for my life. But that is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because this is preeminently relevant to our lives. We may not be the king. And we may not even face a literal, physical battle But we have to, we have our day of trouble. We have our day of distress. And where are we going to go but to the Lord? To whom are we going to turn? And this psalm is teaching us that very thing. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And both the word answer and the word day are also going to be used in the last part of verse 9. So this psalm begins with that idea, it ends with that idea. May the Lord answer you in day of trouble or day of trouble. Of distress, may the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. Now, this word that is translated to set on high, and and how is that translated in the ESV? Um, it is, and, and in other versions, it was translated set on high in the New American Standard. What was it?
2: New King James says defend.
0: Defend. Defend. I think it may be the word protect in verse 1. Do some of your versions have protect there? Yes, it's the word protect, it's the word defend, it's the word set on high. But this is the verb form of the word that is translated stronghold in Psalm 18 verse 2. In Psalm eighteen two, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is my stronghold in 18, 2. And God sets me on high in Psalm 20, in verse 1. May God answer you in the day. Of trouble may the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. And by the way, it is interesting that he refers to God in this context as the God of Jacob. Listen to something Jacob said: Genesis thirty-five, verse three. Genesis thirty-five, three. Let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there. To God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. God answered Jacob in the day of his distress, the text says. And so now the people are appealing to the God of Jacob to set them securely on high, to deliver them as they have, as he has delivered their forefathers. In verse 2, may he provide help from the sanctuary and support from Zion. Now, the word sanctuary is actually the, it's the word holy. Uh, in the Hebrew text. The word holy is used both in verse um, 2 and it will be used in verse verse 6 to talk about heaven. But it seems like in verse 2 the sanctuary is the temple or the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Because you notice He uses that in parallelism. May He send you help from the sanctuary, from the holy place and support you from... Zion, Wherever it is that is providing his support, in verse 3, he says, may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable, Silah. Now, what I'm about to say, we're going to look for a couple of passages to back this up in the Old Testament, but I want you to know that what I am saying applied to all nations in the ancient world to our knowledge. All nations the ancient world viewed war as a religious undertaking. And I'm not saying by that. Uh, what I am saying is they all appealed to their gods to bless them and save them as they went out to battle. They all did. Now, let's look as an illustration. Keep your finger in... in um, Psalm 20, but look at 1 Samuel 7, and let's kind of illustrate what Psalm 20 is saying by a couple of references in historical books. 1 Samuel 7 is before Saul is king, and this is when Samuel is the leader of the people. You really see the text begins around verse 6, when the people gather at Mizpah to worship. When they gather at Mizpah to worship, the Philistines hear about it. And the Philistines will come ultimately and attack the people. But what I want you to notice, that when they hear the Philistines are coming in verse 7, they say to Samuel in verse 8, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of of the Philistines. And in verse 9, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines, and they confused them, so they were routed before Israel. What I want you to notice is that Samuel, uh, Samuel is crying to the Lord. Samuel is offering a burnt offering same kind of thing Psalm 20 talks about. And the Bible says in verse 9, when Samuel cried, the Lord answered. As nations prepared for battle, they cried out to their God in prayer and offered sacrifices. And this is the same kind of thing that we're seeing in Psalm in Psalm um, 20. Now also you see this in 1 Samuel 13. In 1 Samuel 13, in verses 8-12, through the Bible there talks about Saul. Saul doesn't do the right thing on this occasion. But Saul gives us an excuse for him offering the sacrifices before Samuel got there. He said, I didn't want the Philistines to come down upon me in battle and I would not first offer the proper sacrifices. Remember that? Because you you, you offered your sacrifices, you cried to your God, you beg for his help in the midst of battle. This is the situation that Psalm twenty is uh, is understanding to be the background. May the Lord provide you help from the sanctuary, support from Zion. May He remember all your bill offerings. May He find your burnt offerings acceptable. And then verse 4, may He grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. will shout for joy over your victory, and in the name of our God, we'll set up our banners, may the Lord fulfill your petitions. Now, some people would question the wording of verse 4, because it makes it sound like the king makes his plan, and God basically rubber stamps his plan, whatever it is. That's not the point, though. The point, in light of the whole psalm, in light of the whole Scripture, has to be that His plan, His counsel, is one of trust and dependence upon God. It's trusting and depending upon God. God warns against those, and He uses this word, counsel, when He warns about people who make plans and counsel without inquiring of him. like in Isaiah 30 and verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not by my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. So may he grant your heart's desire... May he fulfill all your counsel. The hope is that the the idea is that this king has submitted his will to God's will. the king has listened to God's counsel and God's plan and as a result the people can shout for victory and they can lift up their banner and, and this is the only this is the only time this word for banner is used as a verb in the Old Testament. But the idea seems to be somehow celebrating a victory in the conflict. Now, I don't know if we explained that well or not. Uh, What questions do you have? What ideas about those first first five verses?
1: John. Uh, At least so in verse 1 and in verse 5 there's the reference to uh, the name of God. Yes, and it's going to be again down in verse seven. Yes, but uh, you mentioned number six, and at the end of that series of justices.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, and this, see, we've all learned a new word, here,
1: so we all should be happy about that. Okay. At the end of that, it says, "So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel." And I then will bless them. Okay. So there's this seeking of God's uh, uh, blessing and invoking His name, and seeing what God responds. Yes, yes, that's, that's right.
0: You, you're very right in pointing out <coughs> to how important it is. That phrase, the name of God, is in this text. In verse 1, the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. In verse 5, and in the name of our God, we will set our banners. And then in verse 7, uh, we will boast or we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And, and yes, to call on God's name is to put your complete trust in Him. A name is everything a person is. It is to trust in Him, to rely upon Him.
1: It, 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 does, it, does the Old Testament say that that the, the temple, uh, the sanctuary would be where God's name would dwell?
0: God talks about establishing His name at that place. In um, Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, I think it is, Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, the Bible says, You shall seek the Lord at the place that the Lord your God shall, shall choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling, and there you shall come. So it's Deuteronomy 12:5 prophesies of that, of that place and one of the things said about it it says that he will establish his name there um, And I am trying to remember is that the exact wording in second chronicles, 2 7 Chronicles 7.16, 7, excuse me. Second Chronicles 7.16 For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. I'm not saying that's the only place that that expression is found, but those are a couple. Brad, did you have another one? Um, um,
2: I was remembering Second Chronicles as well. yeah I felt like it said it several times.
0: It may say it more than once there, it seems like it does uh, in 2 Chronicles 7, so, um, but at least in verse 16 it does say it. Very good. Micah?
2: Is there any indication as to whether this Psalm of David, could he have written this during his time as king or before his time as king? I
0: don't know if there's an- any indication as to there, there is not. There is no real indication. And, and David, of course, had battles. A lot of battles in his life. Um, there is no clear indication of that. And I think you could make a really good case for this song. Like the the, the preposition in Hebrew. This this is it's just one letter that means like two day. It could mean two. It could mean by, it could mean several things like that. I, I think there could be a good argument here that this is kind of written in honor of David or t- dedicated to David because of how the king is usually spoken of in, in third person at first, thus suggested. Uh, and then he's spoken of a lot in second person at the end. So... Okay? Anything else? Let's look at verse 6. In verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. And He will answer from His holy heaven with His saving strength of His right hand. Now, a moment ago, John pointed out the key word name in verse 1, verse 5, and verse 7. But but another key word is this word answer. It's used in verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. It's used in verse 6, and it's going to be used again at the end in verse 9. Here in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed, and He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving strength of your right hand. And we want to come back and make a point later about The word save in verse 6 and saving strength. The saving strength of his right hand. God's right hand is particularly associated with his power, and particularly in the Exodus, in Exodus 15, verse 6, in Exodus 15, verse 12. You notice the way, do you notice, did you notice that uh, verse 7, that first boast is in italics in most of your translations in verse 7 to show it's not in the original. Some in chariots and some in horses. But the verb is stayed for the end. We will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Now, that is a powerful, powerful verse. And we want to build on it in a second. The word boast in verse 7 is a word that is generally translated in the Old Testament. Remember. It's a word that's generally translated remember. One thing that's interesting, it's the same word, the same verb, used in verse 3. In verse 3, it is the Lord remembering our offerings, or the King's offerings. May He remember... Your meal offerings, but in verse 7, it is the people remembering God on the greatest day of crisis, on the day of trouble, on the day of distress, when the enemy's armies, their horses, and chariots are gathered outside. The Bible says, We will boast in the name, or we will remember the name of the Lord our God. This is going to result in defeat for their enemies and victory for thee. Verse 8 states that some boast in chariots and some in horses but we will boast excuse me I already read that. Verse 8 they have bowed down and fallen but we have risen and stood upright. Now notice that stark contrast. What happens to they? What happens to we? They bow down and fall. We have risen and stand upright. And verse 9, Save, O Lord, may the King answer us in the day that we call. May the King answer us. So this expresses more confidence that indeed the prayer that the people offered on behalf of the king in verses 1-5, through that that prayer will be heard, that God will save His anointed, that, that God will cause His people to rise while His enemies fall, and that God will answer on the day we call. The day of distress in verse 1 has become the day that we call in verse uh, in verse 9. And the idea may be that God has removed the distress and now it is just associated with crying to God. Now, what I want to do... I, there's a lot more could be said about some of those words. Do you have any thoughts there with verses 6-9? Anything that I should have said that I didn't or a question you want to ask about? Do you think there are so many connections?
2: I can't help but wonder if this idea of um, the call in verse 2 to grant support from Zion would uh-huh. uh, be connected to verse 8, they rise up and stand firm. Um, kind of paints the same picture in my mind at least. Yes. Uh, when you consider the remembering uh, before and after and the answer, just all the connections there. Yeah, um, you kind of looked for it to be uh, chiastic or or, or something. But yeah, it's just not quite lined
0: up that way. Yes, yeah. It, but it, but there are like you said, it, it's hard to perfectly align it. You know, as a chiasm, but it is, but it, but it does have all kinds of connections. You know, here with it, and it's going to have a lot of connections with the psalm. Lord willing, that we'll try to cover next week in Psalm. Um, Psalm 20, 21. Now, what I want you to see... Tommy?
1: Yes, go ahead. Are you going to say any more about verse 9 and the alternate readings on
0: No, because I did... I, 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 I Go ahead and... and what, were, what were the alternate well, readings?
1: The New American Standard uh, reads, Save, O Lord, may the King, they capitalized King, may yeah. the King answer us in the day we call. Yeah. And yet, uh, like the ESV says, Oh Lord, save the king, little k king. Okay. May he answer us
0: when we come. So one is like viewing the king as the one who brings salvation. And the other, the son the king, is among those who are saved. Yeah. Okay. Now, I did read, I did read about some of those differences, but I didn't pursue them. And, um,. And so Claire, as we learned Sunday night, when you ask a hard question, we will say we'll we'll cover that with Psalm 21. You know, so, so we'll try to cover. I'll try John to get back. I will try to get back to that, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll try to say something about it because that's a that is a, that is a good point, and uh, I should have paid more attention to that because I did run across it. I want you to think about first of all Israel's history. Um. Think about times when they had good examples of the type thing we're saying about remembering the name of the Lord our God, not trusting in horses and chariots. Times when you had bad examples. But through all these examples, whether good or bad, God is teaching us the same thing. God is teaching us to trust in Him. So He's teaching us to put confidence in Him. Now, some of these examples, it's hard to class them as good or bad because some of them just gave laws and instructions as far as certain things. For example, um, I'll put this in between the instructions, things that are really neither good nor bad. And here you have like Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17 the three things the king was told not to multiply. Kings not to multiply. Uh, gold and silver.
1: Horses.
0: Chariots and horses and chariots. And wives. wives, wives. The king wasn't in this position to get rich for himself. The king wasn't in this position for his own pleasure in collecting a huge harem. The king wasn't in this position he wasn't to put his confidence in human power. Now, horses and chariots may not sound impressive in this world today. That was the most powerful military machinery of that time. Some bows in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And the king is to be an example of that. You know, in a lot of ways, the way the king was to be a leader He was to be a leader in trusting God. In trusting God, calling on God, and looking to God. Because he wasn't to put his trust in these weapons either. Now, it's interesting that that doesn't mean, apparently, that those weapons are totally forbidden. But it does mean that that's not our confidence. Now, I love this passage in Deuteronomy twenty, verses one through four, and if you if you don't remember it when I call it off offhand, um, just hearing it again, I think you'll love it too. When you go out to battle against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt, is with you. Now it shall come about that when you are approaching the battle, the priest shall come near and speak to the people, and he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are approaching the battle against your enemies today. Do not be faint-hearted. <coughs> Do not be afraid or panic or tremble before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies To save you. When you see they have horses and chariots and more people than you, don't be afraid. The God who brought you out of Egypt is fighting for you. Verse 3, don't be faint hearted. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Don't tremble. The Lord your God goes with you. Some in chariots. Some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. He is our confidence. He is our trust. And He can prevail over the most powerful of foes with the best of weapons.
1: God help us believe that. John. I love I love the the scene in Second Kings six. Oh yeah, <laughs> where, where Elisha and his servant are, are being uh, uh, under siege by the, ar- the army of Syria, yeah. and and his servant is worried, and he opens his eyes to see God's yeah. horses and chariots of fire. Yes, and
0: if you if you don't remember the case, right often some of you were shaking your head and do. But in 2 Kings 6, Elisha's servant sees all these horses and chariots out to, out around them <coughs> circling their house. And he says, My master, and Elisha prays, open his eyes, and there are horses and chariots of fire all around him. And Elisha says these words. The one who is for us. The, the, those who are for us are more than those who are for the That's easy to affirm right here. May God help us to affirm it when we're surrounded by a group of unbelievers. Those who are for us are more than those who are with them. That's... um, That is a good one. I'll I'll just put that as instruction or a comment because I don't know if you list that as a good example from Elisha, a bad example from the serpent. But that's 14 through 17 that you see the heart of that. What are some bad examples in Israel's history of them not learning and then good examples of them learning? Let me say one more thing before I give you the chance to respond. <clears throat> Do you remember the statement in Judges 3, verses 1 and 2? That God left the nations around Israel so that they might learn war. Do you remember that statement? Man, I am surprised the number of times that I have seen commentaries refer to that and have heard that it was alluded to in sermons or Bible classes like God wants His people to learn about using the spear and shield. And... No, that's not the point. And by the way, there's some there's some really strong um, Second Amendment preachers on the radio. I we'll don't if any of y'all haven't noticed that already. Uh, but 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 this is not my point. My point is just to say battles aren't won by those ways either, are they? Why does God want His people to learn war? God wants His people to see the distress of war that they might learn to put their full confidence in Him. That's what it's about. It's not about sword and shield. It's not about spear. It is about us putting our confidence in God. Now, okay. Judges 3, 1 and 2. I'll put that down as instruction. But again, bad examples of times the people didn't trust in God in battle. Good examples of when they did. What are some?
1: You gave a really good one in your lesson a few weeks ago in 2 Chronicles 20. Is it Jehoshaphat? Oh yeah. yeah,
0: love that. Love that, love that example. Second Chronicles 20, the people gather to the temple in a time of crisis and Jehoshaphat prays and said, Our eyes are upon you. And they're looking to God. You, you really read the first 13 verses and you get the idea. And I'll tell you, some people, you know, Michael was asking earlier about the circumstances behind this Psalm. Some people, because of that, try to tie this with the days of Jehoshaphat. I think that's unnecessary. But I do think Jehoshaphat's case serves as an illustration of what Psalm 20 teaches. That here in a time of crisis, the people came to God, they they approached God, they fasted, they humbled themselves before God, they pour out their problems to God in prayer, and God answers that prayer in a powerful way. They win the battle without ever firing a shot. God just causes the enemies to fight each other. That is a good, good example of and reread that text, and it will greatly benefit you. You can read all of, really, the whole chapter till verse 30 deals with that circumstance, but you see what Jehoshaphat did in verses 1 through 13. Well, what else? Mary? Well,
1: you got Ahab over and over again making alliances with foreign nations. Okay. Um, to seek security instead of
0: turning to God. Okay, yes, very Even good. From,
2: uh, not believing God's prophets.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: About the outcome of the battles.
0: Yes, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, Ahab would be a bad example in 1 Kings 20. He, The Lord gives him victory in 1 Kings 20, and understand the K is Kings. Uh, he gives him victory in 1 Kings 20, but then he will not kill. The Aramean or Syrian king of Damascus, even though apparently the Lord told him to, because they had a treaty with each other. They make a treaty. In chapter 22, he doesn't listen when Micaiah tells him, Don't go to war, or else you're going to be destroyed. So that's, that's very good. Uh, Ahab is an example of that. And Ahab's life is a, is a fascinating life. And it's a, God shows him mercy. Uh, God gives him every chance, but Ahab does not. Does not listen. Brad, the, probably the epitome of the, the breaking all those instructions has got to be
2: Solomon. And it, it, the thing that um, is fascinating to me is you read like Second Chronicles eight or nine, uh, nine, where it talks about the glory of his reign, and it's all things God had said not to do. You know, all the gold and silver and you read that chapter and it almost sounds neutral at at least. It almost sounds like a positive that he did all these great things and this is the glory, but he he you got chariots, horses, wives,
0: and gold. (laughs) There is a distinct difference in how we would look at Solomon if we just had Chronicles or if we had just and, you know that's that's a subject for another a whole subject could take up the whole time why those differences and what they're trying to communicate because both of them are communicating truth right but 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 you're but but thinking right now just to first kings first kings now, 1 Kings 11, verses 1... This is going back to Deuteronomy 17. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13. Solomon married 700 wives, 300 concubines. They turned his heart away from serving the Lord. You know, we don't have any problems saying that was a bad thing. Because it's you know, so clear right there, his wives turned his heart away. It said three or four times in 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 13. But right before that, in 1 Kings 10, he multiplied silver and gold in verses 14 through 25. Then he not only multiplied horses, but where did he get those horses from? He got the horses from Egypt, and that's what Deuteronomy 17 says don't do. Don't go to Egypt for horses and chariots. And Solomon did it. I think we are to see in 1 Kings that Solomon's wives turning his heart away, that that was one of several steps Solomon took in the wrong direction. He multiplied silver and gold. Yes, the text says and I know there's some difficulties. The Lord blessed him with it. The fact the Lord blesses us with this, we may then get more interested in pursuing it than we ought to. And I think that's the situation. The Lord blessed him with silver and gold. He probably pursued that more diligently than he should. He puts his confidence there. You remember, he's still taxing the people horribly, even though he's got all this wealth. And then in uh, 1 Kings, he multiplies horses uh, in Egypt. So yes, he's a bad example. He's a bad example uh, of that. And um, I'll tell you somebody else. You, you, mentioned, you mentioned Solomon, you mentioned Ahab um, look at the description, I don't know if you remember it offhand about Ahaz in 2 Chronicles 28 verses 16 through 23 and what you see this is a picture of Ahab. Ahaz, excuse me you see in 2 Chronicles 28 beginning about verse 16 Ahaz is looking everywhere for help except to the Lord now where do you go for help? You go to help for the Lord. In verse 2 of Psalm 20, May He send you help from the sanctuary. Where could I go but to the Lord, we say. Now, I don't know about that line, hardly a comfort can afford. But I will tell you, outside of that line, that is a powerful, powerful song. Where could I go? but to the Lord. But Ahaz turns everywhere, anywhere, and everywhere except to the one who can give him help. I use this as an illustration a lot. And I'm not a fan of either of these people. But Elton John wrote a song about Marilyn Monroe but the lines were so powerful. You lived your life like a candle in the wind, never knowing who to cling to when the rain set in. That is a good description of her life. She did not know where to turn in distress. She did not know where to look in trouble. And where are you turning? this is true, young people, Older people, wherever we are, where we turn in time of distress says volumes about who we are. Where do we turn in times of distress?
1: Ahaz
0: turned anywhere and everywhere but to God. And... and we could go on with a lot more examples. I'll tell you a couple more I had. Um, when Israel took the land of Canaan, and he specifically said that it was not by sword nor bow, but it was by God's power in Joshua 24, 12 and 13. Uh, you see the same thing when we get to Psalm 44, 1 through 8. The same thing will be said. Asa is a good example. I'll put this right up here. Second Chronicles fourteen, verses eight through twelve. He's a good example of somebody who trusted in God in the midst of his crisis.
2: And then in the next few verses, is he a bad example?
0: He he does become a bad example in sixteen. He becomes a bad example. You're right. So, well, that's the way a lot of these guys are. Yeah. A lot of these guys are good examples, and then they're bad examples. Mm -hmm. And uh, they do good things, and they do some bad things. And, um, um, but I'll tell you another one who's like that, who fits on both sides of this picture, is Hezekiah. Because if you look at at Isaiah 30. Well, thirty and thirty-one. If you look at those passages, he is tempted to put his trust in Egypt instead of putting his trust. In the Lord, but then in Isaiah 36 and 37, man, he puts his trust in God. That is too much. This is too much to preach in one class, people.
2: <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm gonna, we're going to to say some of this beyond John's question for next week, uh, and kind of build on this because Psalm 20 is. Um, Psalm 21 is going to be very very similar, so we're going to have to say more about this. But I love those passages and to see the attitude that Hezekiah took. And look at, and look at what he said in 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8. After he flirted with Egypt for a while, he flirted with Egypt, 2 Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8. Um, If someone beats me there, you can go ahead and read it. 32, 7 and 8, I've got it. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the multitude which is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Well, let me just ask you this. If you don't know those verses, if you don't know some of those verses, write them down. Or or Beth, if you want to take a picture, you can. Um, Write them down. Look them up. And maybe we will get to incorporate them um, in next week. I do have a fantasy that some night, here on some Tuesday night, even like this, when we're going to cover more than one song, but it's not going to happen until my podcast catches up with where we are, at least. Okay, because I don't want to get too far, too far ahead that I'm forgetting all I say. But but let's let's deal with the question about Jesus and His fulfillment of Psalm 20. How does Jesus fulfill this? How does Jesus fulfill Psalm 20? Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me just say one thing. You can keep looking at the text, but think about this. We talked about how important these royal songs are in kind of the, appearing at the seams of the book, the end of book 2, the end of book 3, uh, right at the beginning of the book. The people expected a lot of... There were a lot of different expectations if we could go back to first century Jewish people before the time of Jesus or, or the time that Jesus is a little child and ask them, what are you expecting Messiah to be? We'd probably get a lot of different answers. But included in that, in most people's concept, would be somehow a king like David. This idea of the king... There were priests who were... Priests were anointed... And some looked for a messiah who was king and priest. Some looked for one messiah who was a priest... One who was a king. But But they looked for a messiah who would be king. They were longing for a king. And like we said in Psalm 45 that in Psalm 45, the king is the best looking of men, the king is the strongest of men, the king is the the greatest of wonders. Nobody lived up to those expectations. They create an ideal picture that no one fulfills before Jesus. And even in a certain sense, Jesus doesn't fulfill the picture In the sense that He has no form, nor comeliness, nor there is no beauty that we would desire Him. He's not the best looking of men physically. But He is the fulfillment of all they needed and all they longed for. So that's one way Jesus fulfills. John?
1: Well, like in verse 1, the day of trouble... Two of our biggest days of trouble uh, involve sin and death. And Jesus provides the victory of both of those.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Sin and death. Sin and death. I I told you in a moment ago we would try to come back to these words saves and saving in verse 6. In verse 6, you have the word saved. Saving. Verse 9, saved. But do you know in 20 verse 5 that the word translated victory... is from the same root word. So sometimes it's used as a noun. Sometimes it's used as a verb. But it all goes back to the same word Yeshua. Hmm. Anybody else ask me what was that name? Um, Joshua. That is basically that name. You know the name Isaiah. A good name. And it has this part. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. It adds this at the end. This is the Lord's name. The Lord is salvation. The name Hosea. adds. It basically has these words and has these words, these letters in the beginning. And, and so the point is, it means the Lord saves. It just moves the Hebrew part of the word that indicates the Lord's name. But all of these names indicate the Lord's... Sa- so the very fact that this this king is going to save, he's going to be his saving hand, he's going to get victory... As the angel appears to to Joseph, it says, Matthew one twenty one, "You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin." So, even the name <coughs> of Jesus is a fulfillment of all this song hopes for.
1: Monica?
2: Yeah, um, with verse nine, save Lord, may the King answer us when we call. We think of Peter's sermon in Acts two, that okay. in verse twenty one, it shall come past. Whoever calls on the name <laughs> of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. Find that in Jesus.
0: Very good. Very good. Very good. Anything else? Uh, that's that's a that's a good thought. Okay. Um, I don't know if when the day comes uh, you don't know either in your life whether we will see death approaching or not and I don't know if I was given a choice which I would want I'm not sure I would want to know And there are a lot of days in my life. I take the news. I I think if if I were to receive the news that I was dying, that uh, I would receive it completely in stride. A lot of times I can, and then I can remember. I can remember. I, I was going through a time like that several years ago and there was an announcement made one Wednesday night in church about a particular preacher who battled with cancer and said he has not, he's not taking any kind of treatment he's gone into hospice <coughs> And I can remember that hitting me really hard. And though recently there's a preacher I've known all my life and who was an encouragement to me at some times I was discouraged. He said he used to go into the gym a couple of times a week. He kind of was He kind of was arrogant but the fact that I'm 80 and I'm still going to the gym. And suddenly I lost 60. 70 pounds. (coughs) He found out I had cancer of the pancreas. He was saying this past week he was going to try to preach Sunday. He said I'm going to have to find something to wear. I've lost so much weight. And he sat down and he preached but maybe his last sermon. I know for some of you who are young, that may seem like a long way away. As you get older, (coughs) it seems to get nearer and nearer at times. Like I said, at times, I think I would take it well, but it will be a day of distress. Even if it is in the most peaceful of conditions, it will be a day of distress. And I can tell you, about some conversations with some very strong Christians who you could know who don't think I should tell you that indicate uh, the struggle they had. And where is our trust? Where is our confidence? Some put their trust the treasures of the land, some on their fame for the treasures of the land. But mine's on the rock that forever shall stand. Jesus, the rock of ages. May God help me to put my trust there. May God help me to live it away consistent with this. This is not a historical relevant relic, the psalm is not a historical relic relic that has no relevance to our life it is about the ultimate issue of all of our lives where do we put our trust in whom do we put our confidence in whom do we rely may God help us in the day of distress let us pray O Lord our God. You are our strength and our song and our salvation. You have held us up in the midst of distress and in the midst of trouble. And yet, all of us who are alive, No, we have that great crisis to face. We don't know what to say except, oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Keep us in Your will. Help us to put our full confidence in You. Those that we've mentioned, Lord, who are still with us in this world, You know who we were talking about, and we beg you to hold them up and to give them strength. We understand your combination of fear and hope, we understand their feelings. As much as we can. But we need Your help. And we want to put our confidence in You. Hold us in Your hand. And bring us home to You in heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I didn't forget the song, guys. So, we'll...